Hi, this is Mike McGinn, and welcome to You, Me, Us Now. And if you um, went to college in the late 70s, early 80s, and maybe passed it, you remember that song. That is Elvis Costello with What's So Funny About Peace, Love, and Understanding. And I have really always enjoyed that song because it's such a wonderful sentiment. You know, what's so funny about peace, love, and understanding? But he delivers it with this fierceness and righteousness. And probably that sentiment, as uh, as listeners to the show may know, I ran for office after being an activist for years, and I brought that sense of righteousness to the job, and it actually hurt me a little bit. I got beat up a little bit by uh, by my opponents and the public for uh, being that way. And I happen to have here with me today a guest who I think is handling that a little better than I did, for the record, but who's facing some of the same dynamic. And my guest today is Shama Sawant. She ran for office in the same year I lost uh, my term, but she beat an incumbent fighting for $15 an hour, fighting for working people. I like to say no Shama, no 15. A lot of people worked on it, but it was Shama that, that created the, the movement and the political pressure. And now she's been in office and she's, she's still fighting. What I've noticed is that a lot of folks in office currently, people who don't like what she's doing, they, they can't seem to argue with her very well on the issues. So they like to kind of go after her on her personality. I've gotten it a little bit too. Hey, am I being fair, Shama? Yes. <laughs> you know, every, in politics, every time uh, you get attacked for your personality and then you have as a woman, of, you know, immigrant woman of color as, as I am, if you start having borderline sexist and racist remarks directed at you, you know that they don't have political arguments. And it's it's really a sign of how effective we're being if they're having to resort to uh, personality attacks. Well, that that's what one of the things that I found myself dealing with, because I, I came into office basically saying that the people in office weren't doing their jobs well. I think that really offended them. They, they started, what I heard a lot of was you're divisive, you're obstructionist. And what I heard in your most recent campaign is your declared opponent is, well, I know how to use a telephone instead of a <laughs> megaphone and bringing together. You know, I see that together. the whole thing about megaphone versus telephone, I don't even see any of these attacks as personal. You know, I don't get angry or uh, feel bad about it because I see that, that that is a good example, megaphone versus telephone. When somebody... Uh, is denouncing the use of a megaphone in that metaphorical way. It's really a knock, not against me, but against grassroots movements, grassroots activists, all the low-wage workers who fought so courageously for $15 an hour, all the tenants uh, from the East African immigrant community who uh, who fought against stepping forward, a program that would have raised their rent to the point that would have made them homeless, all the people who are on the ground fighting for social justice, you know, they're the ones who use the megaphone. <laughs> right, because they don't necessarily have the uh, the red phone on the uh, office of those yeah, in they power. Don't have a, yeah, they don't have a direct line to the mayor. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so you have to build street heat. You have to build movements. And in fact, any example of social progress, whether it was marriage equality or civil rights, any of those things, including $15 an hour, these were victories that were achieved not because people at the top, supported us, not because of the largesse of big business, but because people on the ground fought for it. You know, I think that this is the reaction of those who are used to holding power. And this was my experience. I was uh, an activist, a neighborhood activist, an environmental activist, uh, worked for a nonprofit. I'd never held office before. And my experience was that a lot of people were very concerned that they were going to lose status, power, ability to control the agenda. And when people feel threatened territorially like that, they, they respond. And, and so I face that. I think you're facing it, too. 
And I think it's an ongoing thing. That's, it is. It's, it not, is. it's, not, never, it's never going to stop. No, and, and when they when they call you divisive, when they label me as divisive, really, you know, they're deflecting the actual issues. When you talk to people on the streets, people who are not being represented in this very, very wealthy city, which is also seeing the widest inequality gaps that we've ever seen, for most ordinary people who don't feel represented in City Hall, for them, the most divisive thing is the economic and social inequality. It's the question that there is so much racial injustice that is always papered over. Those are the divisions in society that we should be talking about. I actually remember during the campaign for re- or my campaign for re-election, Dominic Holden of The Stranger uh, laid into Tim Burgess saying, wasn't trying to find panhandlers divisive? wasn't trying to get Seattle to pay for cost overruns on the tunnel. Good good point, Divisive, aren't aren't those the most divisive things that have happened? And, of course, Councilmember Burgess wasn't wasn't happy with that because the divisiveness he was talking about was I didn't agree with with him and and the and his compatriots that we should build the tunnel or that we should in fact yeah find and look how well people. the tunnel project yeah. has gone I mean you know we we don't even call it the tunnel project we call it the Bertha boondoggle and anybody in their right mind could have told them and they were told all these tunnel cheerleaders you know Ed Murray uh, Tim Burgess Bruce Arnold, all of these politicians. You know, we, they were told by environmental uh, scientists, by a lot of the people who had studied tunnel projects all over the country. They said there is no tunnel project that has gone on schedule that hasn't had cost overruns. And furthermore, this is a bad idea. We need uh, surface mass transit options for this city. Now we have the fourth worst traffic in the entire nation. This is not something to be proud of. And, you know, really, I had a question for you, Mike. Actually, sure. You fought against the tunnel. Yes. Uh, and courageously so you know it was very much appreciated uh why do do you think that in this re-election year where all the incumbents except for the ones that have decided to retire for some strange reason but uh for all the other incumbents who are running this year why is it that the tunnel is not making a big splash in this election year why isn't why aren't their opponents using that uh as a, a reminder to people that these are the people who cheer led the tunnel and look what a debacle it's been you know, that's an awesome question. Let me see if I can try to unpack that a little bit. One was, I think it can be used. I think there's a question of oversight right now, which is, you know, they let go of the expert review panel. There's been no reporting. I, the governor, then Governor Gregoire had an oversight panel that included a bunch of people. It met twice, never met again. But that this kind of goes to this politics of divisiveness or consensus. What an issue like this requires is for somebody to actually raise it and, and try to drive it and try to push it. And I think what we see is, an, is a desire by those that were for it to just kind of keep it below the radar screen. Let's see if we can get past this election, maybe next, past the next election, and hopefully people's memories won't be long enough to remember who was actually for or against it. And, and that would actually was in part, I think that was in part kind of my electoral sin, was that if I had joined in on that endeavor, if I just joined in with everybody and said, I guess this is the solution, I guess everybody just needs to work with it and make the best of it, which is what I was encouraged to do, then that that provides the cover of the crowd to the decision. Everybody thought it was a good idea. Who could have predicted this? So they kind of re- that, that was their requirement to be— This is not an accurate reading of history, though. There were enough people, well-qualified people, all the people in the environmental community— who thought, who knew it was going to be 
a bad idea? Well, I, I said to my uh, one of my friends one day, when does a bad idea become a good idea? And his answer was, well, when everybody says it's a good idea. <laughs> so that was the way that the title was actually sold. Everybody says it's a good idea. Everybody says there won't be problems. Anybody who's raising questions is just being difficult and obstreperous right. and, and try to ignore them. And it's funny because uh, actually I'm going to take a little turn here because I wanted to talk to you about how you got involved in activism and my first understanding of politics and why it mattered. Um, I wish I could say as a kid I was, you know, totally socially conscious. I wasn't. You know, a couple of great parents that were in education, middle class parents, grew up on Long Island, went to college. And then I went to D.C. to work for a guy by the name of Jim Weaver. He's a Democrat from Eugene, Oregon. And when I got there, it was the aftermath of a huge fight. Jim Weaver had fought the Northwest Power Planning Act because the entire region decided that we needed to build nuclear power plants. And he had actually filibustered on the House, on the floor of the House of Representatives. He was called the Madman of Oregon by the press. The, the uh, Oregonian always had pictures of him waggling his finger and his face contorted in, in anger. Right? They personalized it with him, too. And it turned out that um, the, the nuclear power plants failed. It was the biggest municipal bond default in history, billions and billions of dollars. Wow. Um, he was the guy that was right. And I watched all of that experience as a young man in politics. And I guess I kind of thought that if you got to Congress, you must be like the cream of the crop to get there. And Not if you saw their uh, <laughs> approval ratings uh, from the American public. <laughs> I, well, this was, you know, this was 1983. But I, you know, I had a feeling like obviously the only people that got to Congress were, you know, they had to be smart and talented and hardworking and doing everything right because they, they had such great responsibility. But they had all engaged in, in very similar behavior to what we saw with the tunnel, which was they all agreed that we need a massive capital project that'll be good for contractors and businesses and bond issuers and everything else that was completely and utterly foolish from the outset and destined to have a lot of problems. That, that actually was a very important moment for me because what I realized was that actually there were, there were actually no qualifications to be in Congress except for age and, and citizenship. You, know? um, you just had to get elected. Yeah, and I think for most con uh, uh, Congress members, they do have to have one qualification, which is they need to be willing to sell out. Oh, that's a very strong statement. I don't think Jim sold out. No, no, I don't mean it about Jim. And I think that there are genuine people right. there for sure. There's no question about that. But if you look at the overall political outcomes coming from Congress, they're abysmal. I mean, on virtually every issue, which is why their approval ratings are at an all-time low. And, and really, you know, a lot of why... Uh, we succeeded in our campaign, why there is a real, uh, you know, momentum for many grassroots issues, many of, of social change right now, not just in Seattle, but elsewhere, has a lot to do with the fact that for decades, you know, ordinary American people have been told, you have this narrow, you know, uh, sort of two options, the Democratic Party establishment or the Republican Party establishment, uh, and notwithstanding the very genuine people who, are Democratic Party activists run for office, you know, like yourself and so on. Uh, for the most part, the establishments of both parties are ruled by Wall Street interests. And people recognize that, whether they are politicized or whatever, they, they, they recognize that instinctively. And that is why they feel so disengaged and disenfranchised. And since the Occupy movement, a lot has changed. People are refusing to stay silent, especially the younger generation. And there's a real opening for the left, I think. Um, well, let's to make let's, a change. Let's talk. Let's. I want to get back to that. Um, you know, kind of what's happening now, and what's the mood, and and what are the issues. 
But I want to get back a little bit, too, because the premise of the show is, is all about, you know, what was it that compelled somebody to become active and engaged? And I kind of told my story, and you had middle-class parents, too. One was an educator, one was a civil engineer, and now you're an office holder, you know, working hard. What, where, where was that moment for you when you realized, I have to do something, I have to become engaged? Well, I think it, it really came very, very early on for me, just from the experience of growing up in India and, and just observing life, observing reality around me, observing that there was, on the one hand, a sliver of extremely wealthy people, and then on the other hand, massive poverty, where hundreds of millions of people live and die in uh, absolute dire, abject poverty, and Along with that comes the whole, you know, package of caste violence, sex, sex, sexual harassment and sexual violence. And all of that exists in the same, you know, same cauldron. And for me, it was a question of logic, really, not just a question of moral outrage, which I think is a starting point for most of us, but also a question of logic that why is it that if there is enough wealth to sustain uh, so much, so, so many riches for a few people, then clearly this is not the poverty that we see is not endemic to human existence. It's not like it's something in the DNA of the human species that there will be poverty. There is poverty because the system works in a certain way. So for me, from a very early uh, time in my life, that was one of the conclusions I reached. Although I did have a question about whether, oh, maybe things are different in the U.S., you know, which is the wealthiest country in the history of humanity. So for me, the next stage of my education really happened as an adult when I came to the U.S. and looked around me and said, wait a minute, this is the richest country and yet there is poverty. And as a matter of fact, some things might be even somewhat counterintuitive. Also, you know, like not having mass transit where I was living and, you know, I came from Mumbai, which had a fully functioning mass transit system. So all of these questions really uh, even more strengthened my understanding that really this is systemic. And of course, for me, it was clear I had to get involved, but that was separate from running for office. I mean, I... I what was wanted, your first engagement? What was your first uh, activism? My, a lot of what I was doing for, uh, you know, all throughout my 20s was just thinking about a lot of these things. I didn't get involved because most of the options I was offered was getting involved in single issue campaigns, which was not attractive to me. Of course, we have to fight on every single issue right. of social justice. But for me, I was looking for something that was that had a at least a vision of something more fundamental. And so when I came to Seattle, I just happened to go to a political meeting in 2009 where members of Socialist Alternative were speaking and that you know, it was like, boom, that's what I was looking for. And I've been a member of Socialist Alternative since then, since 2009. And what we are is basically a nationwide organization of social and economic justice activists who have a certain vision of a different kind of world. But the the thing that uh, we do is not just, uh, just have that vision and then do nothing. But what we do is engage on issues on the ground. So I've been an activist in the marriage equality campaigns, the the marching against the war on women, you know, for reproductive rights. Also, as a, as an adjunct professor at Seattle Central Community College, through my union, I fought against budget cuts and tuition hikes. So, you know, getting involved in a lot of those issues. And then coming out of Occupy, for us, the question was, how do we continue to engage the newly politicized layer of younger generation? And for us, it was maybe we should be running a candidate for office. And here I am. And you turned out to be the candidate. How did that happen? Yeah, that was uh, that was very. Uh, it was actually for me. It was quite stunning. I mean, we we make decisions democratically, so the question of running an electoral campaign is not something that we take lightly. So we really have a discussion about whether there's an opening for the left to do that. Does that make sense to put our energies into an electoral campaign? 
So, uh, of course, I was in agreement with all those decisions, but I was quite stunned when the when then the question of, okay, who's going to be the candidate came up. It was me, and uh, I was like, you, you must be joking. I don't know if anybody can even say my name in this country. Of course, I was proven wrong by the people of Seattle, which I'm going to be very, very thankful for to them because they made it clear that it didn't matter who the messenger was. And I think that is the message of our campaign too. It's, it's, it's not about me or my political career at all. I have no careerist aspirations at all. But what it is about and what it was about when we ran our campaign in 2013 was the issues and what people were excited about was this is what we want. We want we want an organization. We want people to fight for our issues and to be to have the courage to say unambiguously, we are on the side of working people, not on the side of corporations. So you're a member of the Socialist Alternative Party. There's another very famous socialist <laughs> right now, Bernie Sanders. What's the same? What's different? Between, well, uh, I think the, Bernie Sanders uh, honestly considers himself a socialist, and we, we have a lot in common with what he stands for. I would say, though, that uh, we, in Socialist Alternative, we are absolutely determined to fight for every single reform in the direction of social justice, economic and racial justice, under the current system that we have capitalism, but we also know that at the end of the day, working people everywhere have to go beyond winning those reforms because capitalism will always find a way to undercut those reforms. And I, you know, $15 give me an, an hour- Give me an example. $15 an hour is a great example. I mean, when uh, MLK, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and millions of people, you know, marched for jobs in Washington, they were demanding a wage that is equivalent of $15 an hour today. And you can see in the span of 50 years how much has stagnated for the working class. And is that because, you know, the entirety of the working class was lazy and didn't deserve good wages? No, of course not. If you see productivity is soaring in the same graph, wages are stagnant. And what that shows is that when you want to talk about actual outcomes for a large majority of people, it really is a question of balance of power under capitalism because it is a system of deep inequality. So what we can get for working people is going to be a reflection of how much power we have, political power we have. So when we fought for $15 an hour, we won that, and that was a historic victory. We won that in SeaTac and Seattle, not because it was a good idea. Of course, it's a good idea. It's a good idea to allow people to not have to live in poverty. Of course, it's a good idea, but that's not why we won it. We won it because of our determination, because we built a mass movement around it, and we won it in spite of the opposition of big business. And as long as we have a deeply unequal system where the 1% and really the 0.01% owns and rules everything, we're going to have to always fight these battles. So the real question is, how long are we going to continue accepting this, this situation where there is uh, poverty and racial injustice and all of these things that we none of us want that. So if we don't want that, then we have to strive towards a vision of a different society. One of the things I experienced as mayor was that in order to win an issue, I needed to raise the discussion of it in the public mind, you know, sufficiently high, make the public care about it enough that I could actually move the council members that would oppose me. And what I found, though, was when I was in the mayor's office that there's a zillion issues that you're working on and which ones can you raise to the level of public discussion and debate sufficient to kind of overcome the, the institutional power to, to maintain the status quo. That was always the challenge that I found. What's your experience been with that now that you're in office? Going from an activist, you can pick one issue. You see 20 issues in front of you. 
And right. I think that's a that's a very, very important question, actually, that you asked about, you know, what issue should you pick? And I think that that would be important for us, I would say, even if we weren't talking about pushing through in an electoral manner, you know, even if we weren't talking about holding an electoral office, even for movements in general, for building movements in general, we need to have some sort of sense of what is going to really take off. And so, you know, when we decided to run uh, our campaign in 2013 with a very prominent banner of $15 an hour, that was not a random thing, uh, nor did we think that $15 an hour was going to be adequate or the end of the road in terms of social justice. Obviously, it's, it's the bare beginning. But the reason we picked that was because we could see from the November of 2012 onwards that something was happening around the $15 an hour demand. And really, I think the roots of everything we're seeing now are in the Occupy movement. You know, people write off Occupy movement, but in reality, what it did was end the silence and really it energized a whole layer of younger people, which is always important. Unless we have younger people involved, we don't really, are, we're not really able to build mass movements, fighting movements. You know, something really interesting happened in November of 2012 the fast food workers in Manhattan walked out with a demand of 15 and a union. And when they did that, first of all, they were taking a huge risk because, right. you know, when all you have is a dead-end job that you hate, but you need that job because you have nothing else going for you, and yet you defy your bosses and walk out, that takes a lot of courage, far more courage than anything I'm doing today. And so when that happened, it really, there was a moment of electricity in the air nationwide, people thought, oh, wow, look at that, $15 an hour. And it had that 15, that demand, that political demand had that quality to it where on the one hand, it seemed achievable because it was not like, you know, we, we want, uh, you know, we want to change everything dramatically, which nobody would believe that would happen in a day. It seems pie right. in the sky. But at the same time, it seemed big enough that people felt like, God damn it, I'm going to go out and fight for it. So there's a real confluence of all these things coming together. It's, a, it's, it's one of those things where you can't read a textbook to find out what that exact thing is, but you you got to have a finger on the pulse of, you know, people's consciousness to think, okay, this will take off. And so, and of course we were right. And, uh, but it's also not, a, not just a spontaneous thing. We need that spontaneous passion, of course. But at the end of the day, if the labor movement had not put its energies into fighting for $15 an hour, we would not have won it. If we hadn't won this campaign for city council, we would not have won it. So it's not just one factor, but all of these things coming together. But you're absolutely correct that uh, which uh, which demand you decide to pick to fight for is, has everything to do with whether we succeed. And I would say that, uh, you know, we have a lot to do. I think you and I agree that there is so much work to be done on uh, on social change. But what we have needed and what $15 an hour gave us was a sense of victory. More than anything else, working people need a sense of victory, a sense of empowerment that, hey, if we go out and fight for something, yes, we can win. I mentioned that I went to work in Congress in 1983, and that was the Reagan era. Yeah. And Reagan actually, you know, he ran against poor people, literally ran against poor people, helped break the air traffic controllers union, yes. which was another major sign of, of what he was doing. When I say he ran against poor people, you know, the problem was, you know, the uh, welfare mom in the Cadillac with multiple food the, the stamp mythi accounts. The mythical welfare mom that who, nobody has ever met. Right. So this was, so this was, but it really was a, a sea change. But that hung in there for a very, very long time. Right. And I felt like that the Occupy movement, the Black Lives Matter that we're seeing right now, 
as well as a wave of activism around climate. Yeah, you know, uh, oil trains, coal, uh, the Arctic oil drilling very rig. Important. I think I'm old enough to have a little bit of perspective on this. It's This is sea change type of stuff that I think is happening right here. You know, now people are trying to figure out, if you're an elected official, you're trying to figure out where you know, where to go on That's that. That's true. Every, yeah, to, it's you completely know, it's, transformed. Yeah. It's very, and I think we're seeing that in this election as well. And it was funny. It was, I, I rode an issue into office. We mentioned the tunnel. Um, my concerns about the tunnel resonated with the public, helped me win office. Um, it also led to a lot of uh, criticism from other elected officials. I ultimately didn't win that fight uh, in front of the voters. I felt like I was a little bit ahead of the wave there on picking out what the issues are we should be working on. Um, but now that's caught up. And I was a little bit behind, too. I probably didn't jump on 15 as quickly as I, as I should have, you know, because I was trying to figure out where was the right place to be at any right. given moment to, to position myself. If you may remember, I had uh, refused to sell some property to Whole Foods so that they could build a, a non-union store oh, in an yes. area where a bunch of union stores were. And I'd really gotten beat up bad on that one. So I was trying to figure out what issues could I, how fast should I go, when and where. And I think that's the other thing that happens in office too. I think so. And and I think that, uh, not, and I'm, not, I'm not saying this as critical. Uh, but go right uh, ahead. But I just mean that one of the ways in which we can make sure that our our voice in City Hall, you know, if somebody like you or me is, is representing the interests of a large majority of people, then I think one of the ways in which we can effectively fight back against this narrative that this person is divisive and right. then then you can you know and they are, and the corporate politicians are successful in beating up a, a, a single person on on a particular issue the best antidote to that is to do it in such a way that it really builds a movement around it so that you're no longer the only person speaking about it and what i mean is something very specific i don't mean that people are supportive of you in general in their daily lives but are not really involved, engaged in, in right. really fighting against it. What we need is engaged fight back. So that's, so, that's so what Shama, I'm talking about. Shama, you went and uh, took a pretty hard swing at the, your your colleagues on the council when they went to a corporate retreat, up uh, the Chamber of Commerce retreat up at Suncadia. And uh, I don't know if you noticed or not, but uh, I actually got myself into the media on that one right away. Cause, I did, yes, <laughs> yes. And... And I did because I knew what it felt like to take a swing at somebody else in elective office and stand all alone. So I decided I'd back you up on that one because you happen to be right about that Which one I too. It. Yes, exactly. And, and, and in fact, our, our, even today, I mean, it's it's been almost a year since that happened. Even today, people, uh, when they hear about it, they say, "Oh, that's scandalous," and and you know, everybody right. everybody sees that's that's problematic. You know, that you have the vast majority of elected officials going off to take marching orders from big business. I mean, that's that's now, so blatant. Now, I did, just in full disclosure, I did go to the chamber of retreats. I don't and, think you took orders. And, <laughs> and, and, and I did speak at their events, right. and I did my best to win friends across yeah. uh, in everybody in city government. Um, but, but what prompted me to get into the story when you said that was, I was, I was fearful that you were going to get everybody yelling at you. It happened again with... Um, uh, the other issue that came up recently for listeners from afar was that there was an appointment of a new city council member. One city council member had retired. There were two people uh, that were in the well, race. Yeah, and retired is a benign way of saying it. Yes, but she left her, she left her job, went to work uh, for the University of Washington. And so there was an empty seat. There was an appointment process. And you swung pretty hard in that one, too. And I think they thought they had you on that one because they came after you yeah. pretty hard. 
One, so what what was going on in your mind when you spoke about who had been appointed well, as opposed to who you supported? Well, first of all, you know, just uh, anything that I said was in no, in no way uh, a commentary on anybody's personal life or personalities. We were talking about the politics. And I think we are well within our rights to say, uh, well, if somebody was at the head of an organization that was called out by a U.S. attorney for being a place where, uh, you know, a lot of that's wrongdoings right, the- happen. That's a fair question. But I think it is not so much about that. Not, that's not that's not the real reason why the corporate politicians on the city council got up in arms about this. What was really, uh, what what they were really objecting to was this, that they wanted to have a done deal where there were going to be five votes for somebody who clearly had uh, no qualifications compared to some of the very, very qualified people we already had. You know, this was a question of somebody who was going to head up the Housing and uh, Human Services Committee. And we had very qualified people like Sharon Lee and Sharon Maeda who have a track record, a proven track record of having fought for housing affordability and for the marginalized. And in comparison to their track records, the candidate that was selected didn't have those qualifications. But the right wing of the council had decided that they had their yes man there. And the whole interview process was simply just something that we were going through the motions and it was not really going to influence the outcome. So what is what is the job of somebody who is truly principled on the city council to go along with the sham or to really ask hard questions? And I think it is it is the political duty of somebody who claims to represent working people to ask the hard questions because... At the end of the day, uh, uh, my loyalty lies with the people I'm representing, not with a small group of people whom incidentally may happen to inhabit City Hall this year or last year. Well, I think that's actually, this is is a very important point you're raising, because I think one of the things I noticed was when you live in a one-party town, I guess now we're a two-party town. Well, well you know, I, w- I wouldn't go as far as that, but yes, you're right. I mean, it has, it, Seattle has been a one-party town, and it's officially nonpartisan races for anyone that, that that's listening. So, when you live in a in a town where everybody uh, professes to belong to the same party and professes to share the same values, um, you get into a situation where the loyalty use the phrase you use the loyalty is to the other people in the room, and, and I think one of the things I picked up on was that there was an unspoken understanding, sometimes spoken understanding, that the job of every elected official is to make sure that every other elected official in the one-party town gets re-elected. Um, Except they didn't show you that, you that loyalty. Oh, I know. I, I was not that way. Because you, somehow you were, you were still the outsider. Because you were challenging the Because I challenged them. Because I didn't, because yeah. actually I didn't, I didn't buy into yeah, that, and, that theory. I, I believe yeah. that we needed change and I and, thought that we were doing some things wrong. Right. And if that meant that, that, People needed to either yeah. change their votes, yeah. change their positions, or face opposition in the future. Right, and that was threatening yeah, because and, and, I was and, and, criticizing and, and, other elected exactly, officials. And, and I think you went to the heart of the matter here. Is, is it's not about, but it should not be about personal relationships. I mean, how, and that's not a principled approach to politics. It should be about the issues that affect the lives of the majority of the people in Seattle. And I, you know, I'll say this: if we had, we don't have this today, but if we had a near consensus or a majority in city hall, in city government, where most of us were in agreement about how uh, sharply we need to fight for social justice, how sharply we need reforms, how sharply we need to fight for housing affordability, then I would be happy to uphold that consensus. It's a a question of what kind of consensus you're upholding. 
And that's what's very interesting. I, I know people from afar look at Seattle and see $15 an hour, paid sick leave, uh, the fight against Shell Oil, one of the first to divest. But let's talk about Shell Oil for a second. That's actually yeah. a great example of um, the surface appearance of a progressive approach. But in fact, uh, Shell Oil had the support of the local port commission and it had the uh, tacit support of other elected officials to not oppose it when it came into town, as we've subsequently discovered. Yes. And in fact, you, you were the one I heard that from uh, first, that the mayor's office knew this in November that the rig was headed to Seattle. Is, isn't that correct? And then well, that was, we didn't that, know. The public doesn't, didn't know. That's what, that's what the mayor said. And we also then later heard the CEO of one of the port companies, one of the companies that uses the port, say that he thought he had a deal from the, from the mayor's office and others to be quiet about it. So this is a really... Wow. Uh, you, oh, I'll, I'll share that with you sometime, Shama. So this is really fascinating, right? Because what you want to portray to the public is you're progressive, but... There are things literally right. happening in the back room yeah. around deals, and the outcomes aren't so great. So, yeah. how does a progressive and, and, city have um, so many, yeah. so many and, real and, serious issues and, that and we have to solve? This is serious. I mean, drilling for oil in the Arctic. You uh, kind of think nobody in Seattle. This you is know. horrendous, <laughs> and and no nobody nobody who is not an oil executive or in the pockets of oil executives. Uh, agrees with what's happening. I mean, uh, except for some of the unions, the longshoremen, for example, yes, but, and but some the, of the unions yeah, will come in and fight for that's this happening is because what they are told, see what they want is good union jobs, living wage right. jobs. I, I, I am in complete solidarity with them. The problem they face is that the, they are sold this idea of, and, and which is a false dichotomy between jobs and environment. You know, that is what the port commissioners have been telling them. And I recently found out that, uh, the Port Commission uh, gave $300 million for the tunnel project, the infamous Correct. tunnel project that has gone nowhere. The, those uh, A budget like $300 million would have put Terminal 5, T5, well on its way to becoming a modern cargo terminal. So really, this is not a dichotomy between jobs and environmental sustainability. It's a question of what political choices elected officials make depending on who take the, who they take money from and who they're beholden to. So I think it is completely possible to have good unionized living wage jobs and yet make a big, big breakthrough in favor of environmental sustainability. But for that, we need real political leadership. And I, that is in no way contradictory to what the unions want. No, it isn't. And, and unions tend to, my experiences particularly, you know, the port wants more cargo. Construction trades want more construction. Oftentimes, they're they're completely agnostic about what the cargo is or what the construction is. They they'll they'll build yeah, a they'll build a they'll build a rail line as quickly as they'll build a highway. They just want the union jobs. Right, and there. I and I and I as a as a member of the labor movement myself, I mean I'm a, I'm a delegate to the King County Labor Council. I don't necessarily agree with that kind of agnosticism, but at the same time, I think the buck stops with elected officials. You know, elected officials could provide the leadership and should provide the leadership where we don't buy into this fall. And I keep saying right. it's a false dichotomy between jobs and environment. And, you know, as one of those posters from the environmental movement said, there are no jobs on a dead planet. So, uh, you know, we have the responsibility for future generations to make sure that we create jobs in a, an environmentally sustainable manner. I mean, we're talking about construction jobs. There's a lot to be done. Oh, we need, there's, we there's have a, bridges to be fixed. We have right. schools to build. We have mass transit 
to uh, build here. You know, we need a world-class mass transit system. All of these things can be done with, and we need those jobs. We Seattle needs those good union jobs. We need pre-apprenticeship programs, but we are having very little of that. And at the same time, we're being told that, well, we're, we're going to engage in this suicidal mission, climate suicide mission, because that's going to be good for jobs. It's not going to be good for anybody, uh, except for, for a while, maybe for the big oil executives. I've always loved the Van Jones line. I think it's his line. What do you mean there are no jobs? Is all the work done? <laughs> that's a great line. <laughs> Isn't that a, a good line? That's a great line. And in <laughs> fact, in fact, one of the things we, we all should be emphasizing, you know, uh, we who are who are seeing through that and want both jobs and the environmental sustainability is the concept of just transition, meaning that our fight, and I've always made this clear, that our fight is against big oil corporate executives, not against the workers who work in those industries. Because oftentimes, if you see the workers who are working in uh, coal refineries, in, in the fracking industry, they're, they're some of the most marginalized people for whom there are no other jobs. So, we have to really very prominently put forward the idea of just transition, meaning that we need a, a, a large-scale transition away from fossil fuels into a renewable energy economy in a way that it will that will create jobs where the, the workers from the oil sector can be retrained for these new jobs, which are actually going to be socially beneficial. So I want to talk about one more issue, and as we've been having way too much fun talking here about tons of stuff, but <laughs> municipal broadband. Yeah. As an issue. Tell me what you've been promoting uh, municipal broadband. When you say municipal broadband, what do you mean by that? We're talking about affordable, high-speed internet access with uh, very strong both upload and download capabilities and video conferencing and everything for everybody in the city. And more technically, we're talking about one gigabit per second speed internet access. And, you know, actually just this morning. And who would own and operate it? And how would it be paid for? Because I think this is the key question. Yes. In my view, the city should own, just like we own Seattle City Light, we own our electricity utility. So in, in reality, if we are actually trying to make Seattle as a city of the future, a city of the 21st century, then we really should not be thinking about, oh, this is electricity and out here we have phone access, out here we have internet access. We really should be thinking about this as a public technology utility that provides electricity, provides internet access, provides all these services. And really, I think there is broad agreement that internet access is not a luxury. It's a basic service. I mean, anybody who's tried to fill out a job application will agree with us that you need reliable access. And all those tens of thousands of people in Capitol Hill on April, who on April, April 9th... Oh my goodness, Comcast you know, went out. Oh yeah. my God, what a major outage. You know why that outage happened? I mean, of course... I'm sure I do you not know. know. Why did it happen? Well, one of the reasons it happened was because Comcast, as a corporation that is, you know, which which has as its only goal private profits for executives and the share, billionaire shareholders, has no incentive to build in redundancy in the technology where if right. one part of the system crashes, you immediately have another system kicking oh, they, in. They we have, have those redundancies in Seattle City Light because it's a public utility. And it wasn't always a public utility. And at that time when it happened, people uh, were making arguments that we need to go towards a public utility because electricity is a basic need. I would make the exact same argument, you know, many, many decades later for internet access, that we need this. It wasn't just uh, individuals. It was also businesses that suffered a lot because of that kind of outage. And it's not just those major outage we, outages we would worry about. Just in general, what kind of uh, uh, speeds do you have? I mean, most people are completely frustrated with Comcast. And 
they're especially frustrated because people pay through the nose. I mean, there's price gouging going on. If you're if you want the best package from Comcast or CenturyLink, you're paying well over hundred dollars yeah. a month. We're talking about much more. That's not affordable. And 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 then on top of that. There's 20% of Seattle that has no real internet access. No, many people's internet access is now through their phones. I know. Which is ridiculous. It's ridiculous, One of the things we spoke about uh, before we went on the air was a lot of times when people think about a city building a broadband network, they think about it doing it the same way that Comcast or CenturyLink does, which is we'll run lines down the street and then we'll compete for your business against them. And as I understand it, when you're talking about municipal broadband, you're saying, let's run the wires right to the house. Yes. And so everybody has internet access and, and automatically. The, yeah. that would, wouldn't and, that put Comcast and CenturyLink out of business well, if you already had a line to your house? Well, first to answer the te- technical question, uh, yes, we are talking about what's called FTTP, which is fiber to the premises uh, model. And that's the only way really you can guarantee Every, a high speed, one gigabit per second. If you if if the last bit is covered by Wi-Fi, you can't actually right. ensure those high speeds. Right. So uh, clearly, we need that. We need that for both single uh, homeowners and also multifamily unit dwellers. As far as uh, Comcast and CenturyLink being out of business, I mean, legally, nothing is going to put them out of business. But yes, this is for people. It will be a no-brainer if you have the city providing you a much much uh, more robust more, and much more robust, right. much more reliable and much more affordable service. Why wouldn't you take it? But, you know, you hit the nail on the head, Mike, there, because precisely because of that, precisely because of how transformative having municipal broadband would be for people's lives and they will choose it if they have that option. It's precisely because of that, that we should expect Comcast and CenturyLink to go to battle and really, really bully the city into not doing it. And in fact, uh, I'm not imagining this. Chattanooga, which is the gold standard at this moment for successful municipal broadband, that municipal broadband exists today because the people in the city decided and they were determined to fight the bullying of Comcast. Comcast launched 2,600 attack ads against the idea of municipal broadband in that city and filed four lawsuits so you, if, if you want to do municipal broadband, and I know most people do, then we have to build a mass movement here because without that, we are not going to withstand the might of Comcast. And, and you know, let's face it, we have corporate politicians who have taken money from Comcast and CenturyLink back who are going to be beholden to those corporate lobbyists. So if you want this, we better build a movement. So if you've been listening to this show or if you know Seattle at all, you may have guessed I have a little bit of affinity for Shama because we we both shared a little bit of a feeling about being an outsider yes, against mutual, yeah, an insider yeah, yeah. situation. I, I feel out of a deep sense of authenticity and honesty to let you know that I bet you if Shama and I dug into any number of issues, we'd find ourselves disagreeing on it. And I bet we'd also let you know exactly where we disagreed. Oh, I'm sure. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> In fact, we've both been accused of being so divisive. And and argumentative, I feel like we should just have an argument here somewhere, just to like fill, <laughs> just to fully flesh out the show. Yeah, but we, <laughs> but we've run so long that I do think that we need to 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 wind up. And uh, it's been an absolute delight to have you on the show and and talk about some of these things. And and really, for people listening, the real you know message here is that there's issues and then there's also the process of how does change occur and i i hope we right. hope we've managed to get a few things out about trying to be an activist and trying to be an elected official 
you know, in, in a milieu that while progressive, there is still institutional power. It's Absolutely. not easy. No, it's not easy, but it's important. And you've been doing a good job at it, Shama. I, I appreciate it. Thank now, you. As a voter I, I feel like I might have failed a little bit in making it this more fun. But, uh, but, <laughs> well, but, we're know, both so really, darn. We're both really, so darn earnest. I know. I know. And it's really your fault, Mike, because the questions you asked me, you know, made me, you know, going to the. I know. No, so. it, it is my fault. Of course, it's my fault. So, so but we're well, going to let we, you. We're both earnest. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Well, it's our. It's what drives us, and uh, you know, it's it's why we do what we do. But having said that, I'll let you be personal here to finish. I started with a song that I liked and why I liked it. And you get to pick a song at the end and tell us why you picked it and why you liked it. What's the song you picked? Well, the song I picked for today is uh, Fight the Power by Public Enemy. And the reason I picked it, one, is because I've been thinking about that because of the Black Lives Matter movement and how long a road we still have to go in really fighting and successful in, uh, in ending racism. And... Also because it, the words fight the power, to me, you know, they, they remind me of what's most important. It's not good enough to be for social justice. In a situation of a, a status quo of deep inequality and institutional power, you know, really, the only way you can say that you can claim to be for social justice if you're fighting the power. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Shama. Thank you, Mike. I hope it was fun for you. It was great. Listen if you're missing y'all, swinging while I'm singing. Hey, give it what you're getting. Know what I know in while the black man's sweating.